you have your Bibles, please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. Going to be again reading verse, uh, uh, today in verse 8. If you're using your pew Bibles, that's 1,213. You remember that one of the key themes that we have been following in the book of 1 Peter is that we reside in this world as strangers and aliens scattered throughout the world. Our true home is in the new creation. That is where we truly belong and where we long to be. But it is God's will now for a little while for us to be here. Would have been much easier if God, the instant he, sa instant he saved us, would have taken us immediately into glory to spend our days in holiness and in happiness until the new creation was made. But it is God's will for us, Peter wants us to know, that we reside in this world as uh, strangers and aliens. But even though it is God's will, it is a difficult life in many ways. Peter wants us to know, reminds us, we are distressed by trials of various kinds. He, we have uh, a calling as Christians to be the servants of all, to submit ourselves to serve every living creature. And yet, sometimes in this life, as Peter reminds uh, and those his readers are experiencing, sometimes we'll be slandered mistreated, mocked, and perhaps maligned. There will be times when it is difficult, and when the Christian life is difficult, when being a Christian actually makes life more difficult than it would be if we were not Christians, sometimes we will wonder, what makes the Christian life good? What makes good days good even when life is very difficult? We are distressed, misunderstood, and mocked, and sometimes mistreated. What makes the Christian life so good? What is God's vision for the good life? We want to consider that together this morning as we look at these verses. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from, from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the, face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would illumine our hearts now in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might understand your word to us today. We pray, Father, that you would produce in us the fruit that you describe in this passage that we would be the kind of people that you describe here. We pray, Father, that you would indeed sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, that we might be built up in our faith and strengthened 
for the life that you call us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes good days good? You might ask yourself today, what is a good day for you? And what makes that day truly good? Lou Reed, you may recall, sung about the perfect day. And for him, the perfect day was a day spent in romance. Sangria in the park, feeding the animals in the zoo, a movie, and then later, home together. The perfect day, a good day, was a day spent in romance for him. There is the perfect day of beer commercials that present a particular vision for the good life. And for them, it is fishing with your buddies, carefree in the world. Or maybe it is uh, swimming and laughing by the pool. The vision for the good life is to be young, to be successful, to be beautiful. That is the vision, uh, their vision of the good life. What makes good days good? Sometimes Lee and I will turn to each other and remind ourselves, these are the good days. And usually we say that after we have just put the kids to bed and we are exhausted at the end of the day. And it's just a way of reminding each other that kids grow up fast. You blink and they're out of the house. And even though we are very busy and oftentimes very tired, Yet we rejoice and we need to appreciate these days. We don't want them to just pass by. We don't want to miss out on our kids during these precious days when they are so young, discovering God's creation in wonderful ways, discovering God's grace to us in Christ. We don't want to blink and miss it. What is your vision of the good life? Uh, Peter surfaces that issue in verse 10 this morning. The one who desires life to love and see good days. What makes good days good? We might ask ourselves, what is God's vision for the good life as we study God's word today? And I know what oftentimes happens when we ask that kind of a question. When we turn from asking what is a good day and we say what is, God, what is a good day for God, oftentimes the temptation is to turn from thinking about things that make life joyful, we stop thinking about joy and we start thinking about duty. We are quite sure that God has a different vision of a good life and what makes a day good than we do. And that is true because there, are sin, there is sin remaining in our hearts, and oftentimes we do entertain a different vision of the good life than God does. That's because of sin. But it's not because the Lord desires us to be less happy and joyful. You have to remember, our Heavenly Father is the, is the source of every good and perfect gift. Creation is filled with delights to dazzle our hearts in the goodness of our God. So God's vision of the good life involves us not being less joyful, but being more joyful and expanding our capacity for happiness. What is God's vision for the good life that he wants for us as his people? We live in the world as strangers and aliens. Life as believers is oftentimes difficult. We are distressed, hard-pressed by griefs of various kinds. We are sometimes slandered. These are just some of the things that Peter mentions. Believers in those days and today, too, are, are sometimes slandered, mistreated, misunderstood, maligned. These are the things we oftentimes experience. During those times when the Christian life is hard, and especially when the Christian life is hard because you are a Christian, you find yourself asking, what makes the Christian life so good? That's what we want to consider today. Is there a great joy that God gives us that makes life good even when our days are hard. 
Let's look at that together today, and I want to consider with you what uh, these good days that God has in mind, what they consist of. We're going to ask today what makes them good, and finally, what we must do as God's people in order to truly enjoy the good days that God has given us as his people. So first of all, uh, what, is the, what, do, what do good days consist of? What do they look like? What is God's vision for the good life? He describes it in this passage. Uh, uh, the good life for him is a life lived being, verse 8, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Being made, growing in, and learning how to be somebody who increasingly does not return evil for evil, but instead gives a blessing. Verse 10, he continues, his vision is that we would become increasingly a people that keep our tongues from evil, our lips from speaking deceit, that we turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. These are the kinds of things that God, that make life good. And today, as we, uh, we want to see what uh, the good life consists of, but we also want to ask ourselves, first of all, these may be what uh, make good days good, but the fact is, we are not good. So how do we deal with that, first of all? And then secondly, in this first section, we want to ask ourselves, even as, supposing the, you know, these are good days, are they happy? Is there happiness in it? So first of all, uh, God, you know, let's look at God's vision for good days. A good day is a, a, a day in which we as God's people are spent uh, being harmonious. Now each of these terms, I want you to know, are distinctly and uniquely Christian. They have a unique definition, and so we can't fill in just any old definition. They are distinctly Christian and gospel-centered. For instance, harmonious, that word is the same word that means like-minded. Like-minded in the sense of having your whole heart in shape uh, whole heart and life shaped by the gospel message. It is a specific kind of like-mindedness, a like-mindedness around the gospel message, the wonderful things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That is what binds us together as a community. You know, in our country recently, we have been uh, sort of debating, do we take refugees in? You may know about that debate, and the question, at least for some, is do these refugees share our values? If they share our values, then they'll come here and they'll be harmonious with us. In the Christian community, it is not that we agree on everything. We have our differences. You know, it's not that we are like-minded in the sense we agree on every issue. We're going to have differences on the color of the carpet, that proverbial example, or in our case, the tile or the wall paint. We're going to have differences. Like-mindedness does not mean that we are all the same in every, uh, in every issue and in every respect. It is a kind of like-mindedness. Like we are like-mindedness in the sense that we share the worldview that is shaped by the gospel. We have a common understanding as a people of the origins of the world. God made the world good. We have a common understanding of what is wrong with the world. Sin and all the misery that it causes. Death, disease, natural disasters all come from the entrance of sin in the world. We have a common understanding of, the, of what will solve the world's problems. Christ's death and his resurrection and nothing less. And as believers, we have a shared hope. We look towards the future. We hope that Christ will return and right all wrongs and make this world a place full of joy according to God's purposes once again. That's what it means to be like-minded. It is a like-mindedness in the gospel in particular. Secondly, a good day, so first of all, a good day is, is becoming like-minded. It is a day when you are discovering the riches of God's mercy for us in Christ. You are growing in your understanding of the gospel. That's a good day. When you remember the gospel and you're walking in it, you're delighting yourself in it, that's a good day. 
Secondly, a good day is when you are uh, become, you are, it's a day spent uh, being sympathetic. Christ is a sympathetic high priest. He sensed our lost condition, and his compassion led him to do something about it. He came and he died for our sin. And now that we are united to Christ, we are being made more and more a people who are sympathetic, who sense and are aware of and feel the burden, the distresses, the challenges of the people around us, and we are led in our compassion to do something about it, to put into action, use our resources for the good of others, just as Christ used his resources for our good. Today, growing and becoming more like Christ in sympath uh, being sympathetic in that regard, it is also becoming more brotherly. This word in the original context uh, did not refer to a, an attitude or a sentiment, you know, sort of how you have kind feelings for your brother or your sister, sometimes. It is not an attitude or a sentiment. It is, uh, first and foremost, an obligation. The obligations that you have towards your biological family. That's the way the word was used. But now, there's a distinctly Christian sense in which we are brotherly. We, our Heavenly Father, Peter has reminded us, has caused us to be born again into a new and a living hope in Jesus Christ. We are now part of the family of God. To be brotherly means not that you merely have kind sentiments towards your fellow believers, although that's involved. It is especially that you feel an obligation to your family. These are my brothers and sisters, and just as I feel an obligation to take care of my parents or my children or my family members as I have the opportunity, I feel a burden, an obligation to look after my church family. That's what it means to be brotherly. Uh, we, uh, a good day in God's book is a, is a day growing and being kind-hearted, tender-hearted. You know how it is easy for us to become callous and hard-hearted, to build up a wall to keep others at a distance. It's less painful. Especially in church fellowships, oftentimes we sin against each other and it hurts. It's just easier to build up a wall and keep others at a safe distance. Christ did not do that for us. Christ remains. He was, even when we are at our worst as enemies, he came and he loved us and he died for us. And not only that, but we continue to offend Christ daily, and yet he does not uh, build up calluses on his heart against us. He doesn't harden or close his heart to us. As it were, if, if calluses developed, Christ would be peeling them away to remain tender-hearted in the way that he loves us and cares for us. And as Christ indwells us, that is the way that we become. We become a people that are tender-hearted. We don't give in to the temptation to build up a wall and keep others at a distance. Yes, it hurts. But as Christ has entered into uh, love for us, and then it cost him and it hurt him, we are willing to enter into fellowship, even at the cost of pain ourselves. We are humble. A good day is a good day when we are just get to experience the fruit of humility. Christ humbled himself, he became a servant, obedient even to the shame of death on the cross. As Christ indwells us, we become a people who are humble ourselves. We become servants to those who are around us, even as Christ has become our servant. And the list could go on, you know, as uh, Peter describes it. A good day is a good day returning, heartfelt blessing for evil. It is a day keeping our tongues from evil, doing good, pursuing peace with others. These are good days. Now, we may say, okay, even supposing good days consist in these things, first of all, we are not good people. 
We are struggle with being harmonious, uh, keeping the gospel fresh in our hearts. We struggle with being sympathetic, uh, having a compassion that actually leads us to do something about the uh, challenges that a brother or sister is facing. We struggle and we oftentimes fail to be brotherly, to fulfill our family obligations the way Christ did for us. We struggle to be tender-hearted. We are oftentimes find it easy to be calloused towards our fellow church members. We struggle with pride. Even supposing these are good days, what access do we have to those kind of good days? And the answer is that Christ, in all of these ways, is not just an example to us. He is a redeemer and a savior who came, who took all of our sins upon himself at the cross, all the ways that we fail to be harmonious and like-minded, to be sympathetic, to be brotherly, to be kind-hearted, and to be uh, humble. He took that on himself so that we now consider these things as those who are completely forgiven for all of our failures in all of these regards. And not only that, but Christ dwells in us. You and I don't have it in us to be good this way, to experience these kinds of good days, but Christ lives within us. Christ is good. And because Christ dwells within us, we can become and grow in these areas and experience good days. But you might ask yourself, even supposing you can, uh, you know, this is what make good days good, and you can sort of acknowledge the beauty of that kind of a life. It is a good life, but is it a happy life? Last week in our uh, Sunday school class, we... Uh, considered an issue that is just uh, so relevant to this. We looked at the problem of, you know, love is not selfish, and we said that the problem with selfishness is that selfishness shrinks our capacity to find happiness to me. I can only find happiness and joy in life uh, in the things that are good for me in particular that affect me personally. Now, we have to acknowledge, if that's our joy, and if we are selfish and left in that position, we have a very small capacity for joy. My life is not very big. If that is our capacity for joy, we have a very small capacity for joy and for happiness. But what happens as Christ redeems us, as he indwells us, as he works in us, is that he expands, once again, our ability to find joy in life. We find as much joy in the good things that happen to others as we do the things that happen to us, the, 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 the good things that, make, uh, that, that are good for others make us happy. As happy as if those good things had happened to ourselves. You see, we are able to find happiness in the good that others are enjoying, even if we don't enjoy it ourselves. That is a much richer joy, and above all things, Christ has restored to us the ability to enjoy and to find happiness in God. All of his goodness that he is in and of himself, his great majesty and all of his infinite uh, attributes and excellencies that we love about God. We are able to enjoy God for God. And we are also able to enjoy all the good things that he does, not just for us, me and my salvation, but for the whole church. God is doing wonderful things in other people, and I find happiness in it. So Christ is expanding. What is happening is our uh, shriveled in our sin, our capacity for happiness and joy has become quite small. But in Christ and his redeeming work is enabling us once again to find happiness throughout the world and all the good things that God is and all the good things that he is doing for others. And so it is a happy life. But sometimes life is hard. Being a Christian is not always easy. What happens when uh, in the midst of trying to please God, you, life becomes more difficult? We are distressed by various uh, trials of various kinds, as we uh, saw earlier. Peter says, as you try to live this kind of good life, it's not going to be easy. 
There will be times when you are slandered, when you and all your motives are misunderstood and misrepresented. There will be times when you are maligned for no other reason than trying to do what pleases the Lord and to love and to seek to do good to others. There will be times when life is hard, and in those moments when life is hard, especially when it is hard because you are a Christian, you need to know what is so good about this life. There is a path that God has called us to walk. We need to know what is good about that path. That path that God has called us to walk as Christian is good for two reasons. It is good because of where the path ends, and it is a good path to be on because of what walking this path is doing to our hearts. It's a good path for those two reasons, where it ends, what it's doing to us as we walk it, as Christ walks with us. So let's look at those two things. That I get this uh, image of, of walking a path from verse, uh, the second half of verse 9, but uh, Peter calls us in verse 9 not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead, for you were called for that very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Now this verse can be very confusing. Um, perhaps the question occurs to you as you study this uh, verse and as you consider it, is Peter saying that our blessing others when they do evil to us is a condition God requires us to fulfill in order to receive his blessing? Is that what he means? You've been called for this purpose to bless others as a condition for receiving God's blessing. You may as well address the issue head on. Is that what Peter is saying? And the answer is no. We know that that cannot be what he means because he talks about inheriting a blessing. You know how inheritance works. You do not go out, get a job, uh, apply yourself, do all this work, earn the money, and then bring your money home and call that an inheritance. That's not an inheritance. He says inherit a blessing, and that is a distinctly gospel-centered, Christ-centered understanding of how we receive God's blessings. Someone, you know how inheritance works. Somebody who is wealthy names you as a beneficiary in their will, and then when they die, all their wealth becomes yours. It's not hard to see what, why that word was so meaningful for Christians. Christ has named you and I as his people, as beneficiaries of all that he has, in his will, as it were, the covenant that he has made with us. And when he died, all that is in Christ became yours. All of his wealth is now yours. Every blessing that we receive from the Lord, we receive from the Lord based on Christ's finished work. Because he died, it all comes to us. We inherit a blessing, and so we know that Peter is not saying that we are to treat others well and not return evil for evil and mind our P's and Q's in that regard in order in the hopes that we then will be able to earn God's blessing. That, we know that's not what Peter has in mind. But what is Peter saying? Uh, in ver at the end of verse 9. Uh, our, this is what, uh, we, as we work it out, this is what we need to understand. Our uh, blessing others, even when they do evil for us, and God's blessing of us are not related to each other as cause and effect, as though our uh, returning a blessing rather than evil is the cause of God's blessing us. They're not related as cause and effect, but rather they are related as means and an end. What that means is that Christ has ordained for us to walk a path of blessing others. And although that's a very difficult path, he has you on this path because he uh, intends for you to arrive in the new creation. 
It is a means to an end. This is the means that God has ordained to the end that we receive the blessing he intends for us to inherit in Jesus Christ as a free gift. So what does that mean? It means that this path is a difficult path to walk. This life that we are called to live as Christians is difficult. It is a good path because of where it ends. There's the, uh, Christ talks about the narrow path and the broad path. The broad path that leads to destruction is the easy one and the narrow path. We, have, we are on this narrow path that is admittedly difficult in various ways by God's grace. He has us on this path in order that we might arrive home. It is the road that leads home to glory. And that is why you are on this path, and that is why it is a good path to be on whatever difficulties you may encounter along the way. I know that some of you enjoy hiking. And sometimes, you know, oftentimes the whole point of hiking is that you arrive at a beautiful destination. You know, some, sometimes you hear stories about this beautiful lake up in the mountains. You want to go on a hike uh, to get there. But sometimes the hike is very difficult. It's very arduous. It's steep in places. There's uh, root, tree roots that are going through the path, lots of opportunity to slip. It's rocky. You're, after a while, your legs are burning. If you've ever been hiking like that and you have this vision in mind of this mountain lake that is supposed to be coming at the end of all this arduous journey, you sometimes wonder to yourself, at least I do, <laughs> sometimes I struggle with anger and I say, is this really worth it? How much further along on this path is it? And then by the time you get to the top and as you finally come over the final hill and you see this beautiful lake and you sit down, what glory, what, what joy fills your heart as you get to see this beautiful vision. There will be times in your life, it's a steep and a rugged path and a hard path oftentimes, the Christian life, you will find yourself asking, is it really worth it? Why should you endure? You should endure because this is the path that leads to glory. And Christ knows that very well. For him, it was a path of suffering that lead to led to glory. For us as his people, it is a path of suffering and serving others. But it is a good path to be on whatever the difficulties we encounter are because it is the path by God's design that leads to glory. The end of it, there is an extraordinary blessing that God means to give us. So give thanks, even when life is hard. You are on a good path. It is the means that God has ordained that by which you should come home to the new creation. Second, what makes this path good is what uh, happens to you as you walk this path, as Christ walks along this path with you. Because Christ is with you, what happens is you walk this path and you have various challenges. People do real evil to you and you, you seek in your heart to return a blessing, a heartfelt, not begrudging, begrudgingly uh, wishing others well, but from the heart you genuinely seek to bless others, even though they are insulting and provoking you. What you need to know as you do that is Christ is walking there with you and he has a purpose. This path is a path that Christ walks with you and alongside you in the midst of your struggles as a way of fitting you for heaven. Paul just talks about this way. He talks about how these light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. And that glory is becoming like Christ in the way that we live and enjoying Christ ultimately in the new creation. He has you on this path and you are being trained. You are being trained and you are being fitted through all these difficulties you are being fitted as God's people for heaven so that God can bring you. And when you get to the new creation because you have been tested and tried in all these ways, 
When you are surrounded by all the delights of heaven, you will not set your heart on all those delights and make an idol of them, but you will love the Lord who has brought you safely home. You are being prepared as you walk this path. You are being fitted for heaven. You are becoming a kind of person who is harmonious, who is humble, who is kind-hearted, brotherly, sympathetic, and therefore is fit for heaven. God has a purpose for you in walking this path, hard as it is. And he is hard at work in you, changing you from the inside out and fitting you for heaven. So this path is a good path to be on, no matter the difficulties, because of where it ends, the new creation, and because of what God, uh, Christ, does in your heart as you walk this path, difficult though it is. Well, what must we do then if we are to enjoy these paths? If these really are good days, in spite of all the difficulties we face, what's our responsibility? Christ is with you. Your job is to notice him. It is very easy to go through life, even as a Christian, and forget that Christ is with you. Your job is to notice that he is there. Don't overlook the wonder that Christ has united himself to you and that he is with you in the midst uh, as you walk down life's journey, whatever difficulties you face. Your job, as in the language of, that Peter used in verse 15, your job is to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. If you were to enjoy these days as good days, you must be doing that. I'd like to show you why it is so important for us to do that. First of all, sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts uh, heals us of our selfishness, that small capacity to find happiness only in ourselves. Because when we sanctify Christ as Lord, we discover that he is the true hero of the story. All of life, he is the center of the universe, we are not. And when he, you know, then you're free. Rather than obsessing over your own accomplishments in life, you are free to find happiness in the accomplishments of Christ, the victory that he has won in your place. You find great joy in that. But so long as we are selfish and we do not sanctify Christ in our hearts, we find it very difficult to find much joy in anything but what the good things that happen to us. So we need to sanctify Christ as Lord. It heals us of our selfishness. I don't have to obsess over my own significance in the grand scheme of things. I can find happiness in the significance of Christ in the grand scheme of things, and it sets me free. Second, by sanctifying Christ as Lord, we are able to put away all vengeance. How in the world will we ever be able to not return evil for evil, but to give a blessing instead? The first thing that is necessary is that all vengeance and malice and ill will should be removed from our hearts. And we can only do that if we sanctify Christ as Lord. And specifically, if we know that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. Revelation 6, verse 16, we read that men will cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. There are some people who say that if we believe in a God of wrath, we'll become a people of wrath and commit violence ourselves. But the point, uh, the exact point is, uh, biblically is the opposite is true. Uh, there's a theologian named Miroslav Wolf. He grew up in Croatia under communist uh, rule, and he saw there firsthand that those who do not believe in a God of wrath and vengeance will become, will take justice into their own hands and become very a people of wrath and become a people of violence. 
It turns out if you don't think anyone is coming to establish justice in the earth, you'll become that person. Who else is going to do it? I'm going to do it. You will take justice and vengeance into your own hands. And the only thing that allows you to remain patient and not resort to vengeance yourself is if you know that it's not your job and your role. We, there's one lawgiver and judge, and it is not you. It is not your role to establish justice in the earth. That's God's role. Unless you sanctify Christ and know that he is coming to set all things right, then once you realize that, you sanctify Christ in that way, you're free. You don't have to be full of wrath and injustice. Christ is the only one who is competent to truly sort things out in a way that brings justice. So you're free from vengeance and wrath. You know that, you know, as it says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay. As for you, put all vengeance outside of your heart. So if we are to, you know, not to return evil for evil, we need to sanctify Christ as the one who is coming to judge the living and the dead. He is the competent judge who will sort all things out in the end. Third, by sanctifying Christ as Lord, we gain courage. Christ is immeasurably greater than anything that is against us. You know, uh, we need courage because at the end of verse 14 it says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. We, cannot, we will fear intimidation. We will be profoundly troubled if we do not know how strong Christ is. If we are not sanctifying him as the God of great power and glory who loves us as his people. There's a, a, scene, a, a scene in one of my uh, son's books, uh, Adam Raccoon. Some of you know the Adam Raccoon books. This one is uh, called Lost Woods, and uh, Adam Raccoon, a little raccoon creature, is run into the woods chasing a ball. And uh, there he gets lost, he loses his way, he can't find the ball, and he can't find his way out, and suddenly is surrounded by wolves, and it's dark. And the wolves are surrounding him, and they're, they're terrifying, intimidating. And just as they are about to pounce and rip Adam Raccoon to pieces, suddenly they all are filled with dread and they run away. And Adam Raccoon is a little bit mystified as to what is happening, until he feels on his shoulder the strong paw of King Aaron. They ran away because King Aaron is much stronger than they are. We need to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts to know that he, uh, our enemies, sin and death and everything that comes against us is no match for our Redeemer. Christ is one of immeasurable power. He calmed the wind and the waves. And do you know that the disciples, when they saw Jesus do that, were more terrified for a moment by Christ than they were of the storms, the wind, and the waves? They said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? In one scene in the Gospels, the disciples could not cast out a demon. And in the next scene, Christ comes against a whole legion. And they tremble before him, and they can only do what he gives them permission to do. Who is this? Christ of incredible power. When you sanctify Christ as your heart, and you know his great power, and he loves you, and he cares for you, you're not, you're not what are you intimidated? What, what, you know, as you sanctify Christ in your heart, what exactly am I afraid of? What lasting harm can possibly be done to me if Christ is for me? Shame or nakedness or fear or sword, nothing can take me from, uh, out of the hands of my Redeemer. I don't fear their intimidation, and I will not be troubled. I'm in the hands of a very strong redeemer. Fourth, by sanctifying Christ in our hearts, we sense his watchful care. It sort of goes uh, in a way of what we were just talking about. But if we, unless we, are, we know that Christ uh, watches over us, you know, 
those beautiful images that he often talks about, the lilies of the field, the sparrows. You know, Christ knows every single sparrow. And as Christ sort of suggests, sparrows are worthless in the grand scheme of things. And yet, Christ knows every single one of them. And you are much more worthy, uh, 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 you are much, well, worth much more than sparrows. How can you doubt that Christ knows the very number of hairs on your head? He's taking care of you. And you can rest in that knowledge that you must sanctify Christ in your heart to enjoy that knowledge as you tread the path of life. Finally, by sanctifying Christ in our hearts, we nurture hope. We walk this path, but when it's difficult, sometimes you will wonder. You, know, you start to ask the, the, children your, or the, the question your children ask on a long journey. You know the progression of how it goes. First of all, it's, uh, are we there yet? Then it becomes, how much longer? And finally, they say, we'll never get there. As Christians, sometimes it feels that way. It's a long journey, and it's really hard at times. How much longer will we ever get there? And in those moments, you need to know what hope you have, that this path, difficult as it is, is going to lead to the new creation. What do you have to go on in the end? Two things. First of all, you have God's promise, which is no small thing, because God is the one who spoke by his word the whole creation into existence. And now if he makes a promise with that same, that word that he has given you, that promise has the same power to make the new creation in due time. You have it on good authority that there will be a new creation, that there is going to be a very bright light at the end of this dark tunnel. But God gives us more because you have not only his word, but you have, going all the way back to uh, the beginning of 1 Peter, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How do you know the story is going to end well for you? And that it's worth treading this path. You know that it is worth it because you've seen Christ. He tread a path first of suffering and it led to him to glory. The glory of the resurrection. Christ rose from the dead historically as a fact. And that gives you great hope. You know how this path ends. However it may look in the meantime. I've shared with you before in my struggles with cancer when I was diagnosed with cancer that my confidence in the resurrection was very weak. Uh, it was not a shining moment for me. But what got through to me is Christ rose from the dead in history, visibly, concretely, tangibly. I know that happened. And therefore, I do not doubt that I too will rise from the dead, no matter what. That is a great confidence that Christ gives us. We have his promise, but we have tangibly, physically, empirically in history the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know how the story ends. You know that this path is good to be on because of where it ends. So what makes good days good? Is there a great joy that carries you through life, makes good days good, even when life is very hard? First of all, the path that God has laid out for us is hard. It's true. But it's good because of where it ends. Life with Christ in the new creation. And it's good because Christ is with you and he is working in you to fit you and prepare you and train you for heaven. And Christ along the way, they are good days, they are happy days because Christ is taking our selfish hearts that are constantly shrinking down to finding happiness only in me and it is greatly expanding our capacity for happiness that we might find happiness in the good things that God is doing the good that God is and the good things that he is doing, not just for us personally, but for others. 
We rejoice in the good that others have. When we find their happiness and the good things that they enjoy makes us happy. What a happy person you become when you are set free from selfishness. And God is working even through these troubles to make you that kind of a person that finds joy in so many different places and above all in God himself. So God is calling you to walk this path and I want you to know today as you, whatever your struggles are, maybe things are good right now, you're in a good part of the path. When things are difficult, remember these are the good days. These are good days because Christ is with us and we have great hope knowing how this uh, hike, difficult as it is, will end. Let us uh, give thanks to the Lord and sanctify Christ in our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in our Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we give you thanks that he has risen from the dead in history. Father, it was a difficult path for him. For he had to bear our sin and suffer greatly. He was mocked and maligned and spit upon. And yet, Father, he went to the cross and the story ended for him in a glorious resurrection. And Father, we now know whatever we suffer, first of all, we give thanks. We are not bearing our sin for Christ has already borne it and we stand forgiven. And not only that, Father, we know that whatever we suffer in this life, we are in Christ's hands and we know how the story ends. Father, we know how this path ends and we know what you are doing in our hearts in the meantime. Father, make us fit for heaven. Make us like-minded and harmonious and humble and tender-hearted and brotherly. Father, teach us what these things mean and our days will be good for you expand our joy that we might find joy in the good that you are doing for others as much as the good that you are doing for us. We thank you for your good work. In Jesus' name, amen.